0: Lord be with you. Welcome to Bethany this morning for our fifth uh, lay theology conference. It's a conference we put together, well I guess it's been a lot more than five years because COVID really messed us up for a couple years there. Um, but uh, about six, seven years ago, we started bringing out a speaker once a year to, to speak to a relevant topic for the laity on a on a Saturday, and it's been uh, well received. Also, it's been fun to offer this to the other congregations throughout the throughout the circuit and the district. And really, uh, as I'm as I've seen today and throughout the registration, um, as of yesterday, uh, we shattered any record of registrations from previous years. I think we have like over 120 people who are who've registered for today. And over half of you aren't members here. So if you look around, you're like, I don't know any of these people. That's true for even people who go to church here normally. Uh, Everybody's kind of a guest. So with that, a couple housekeeping things. There's bathrooms. As you leave the sanctuary to your left, there's, there's two restrooms there. There's a bunch of restrooms in the gym. But then down the hall to your right, there's actually restrooms as well. So really, any way you go, you'll find a place to go to the bathroom. Uh, coffee. Um, you're welcome to bring coffee in here. Just keep in mind that uh, with the nice little slope that we have, things don't things don't sit down perfectly. And if you spill your coffee in the back, it's a gift that you share with everyone all the way up. So just be careful with with the coffee that, that you might be uh, bringing in here. Uh, we'll be having a break as your as the schedule shows there on your on your handout. Uh, we'll try to keep as close to that as we can. Um, Let's see. Lunch, and uh, we'll take our lunch break about middle middle of the day. There, if you didn't get a chance to register, that's okay. We have we have plenty of food. We just, um, just needed to know generally uh, how many people are going to come. So stick around for lunch, and, and we'll have plenty of more conference coming up in the afternoon. There are often plates available. It is it is a free, uh, totally free conference. But to help us offset uh, our costs, if you'd like to to donate in the free will basket, there's a basket at the, at the registration desk, and also at our meals to help offset some of our costs. And, and, uh, and also, and to our to our speaker, Pastor Wolfmiller. Uh, the service, uh, as you might notice from the weird technology it's right in this, the big stick in front of us here, we're live streaming uh, live streaming this. So um, if you have to leave later in the day or something, or if you want to go back and watch it, it will be available on our church's YouTube channel. Uh, we're live streaming today, but the live stream stays uh, available on um, on for the, the internet to see forever. So don't say anything embarrassing; it'll be there forever, Pastor. Uh, and also our church's podcast. So now uh, we'll welcome Pastor Brian Wolfmuller from uh, St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in, in Austin, Texas. Uh, pastor Wolfmuller is a friend of mine from back in the day when I used to serve in Colorado as a young pastor and he was down in Denver. Uh, always been a, a mentor to me, a great example of, uh, of a pastor and, and uh, really ins- very inspiring as many of you have come from miles and miles around uh, to, to hear what Pastor Wolfmuller said. is such a uh, fresh view, a helpful view of Lutheran theology and, and really comforting for the conscience and just a helpful voice for the Lord's Church. So we're honored to have him here. Uh, in addition to the vocations of husband, father, and pastor, he's a number of theological hobbies. He's an author of multiple books. Uh, we're going to have a bunch available for purchase today. We forgot to do that, so disregard that statement in your in your, uh, in your your bulletin. But obviously you can find all these things online. Uh, pastor Wolfman has also put a lot of things out there that are free, uh, that are available through his, his personal website. You can see, find that in the handout. Uh, everything from translations of Luther's Catechism in the public domain to all many many of Luther's uh, writings, and uh, he's got tremendous essays addressing lots of different topics. So if you haven't played around on his website, wolfmuller.co, please do. He's off. He's on many uh, podcasts, and he's got his YouTube channel, which is one of my favorite thing that he does. Uh, I, I made one of my many favorite things that he does Is this thing where he's called grappling with the text Where he's got his hands, all you see is his hands And he's working through the text And making notes in the margin And just like blows your mind and How does his brain do so many things at once So uh, masterful uh, So look, check out all that stuff on, on his website and, and, on, and online There's lots of different ways you can go So we're thankful and uh, very much appreciate Pastor Wolfmuller's time here today So welcome Pastor Brian Wolfmuller
1: That's wonderful. Thank you. Is that working? Can you hear me okay? Uh, It's wonderful to see you all this morning. It's an amazing thing to me that you're here on a Saturday all day. Well, some of you are like, well, we haven't decided if we're going to stay all day yet but see how the the morning goes. But you're here on a Saturday to consider the Lord's Word, to rejoice in His truth, uh, to think about what it means to be a Christian living in these days. Uh, I'm really honored uh, that you are here for your attention. It's it's a wonderful gift, Uh, and to Seth and and the Clemmers for uh, having me last night. I was thinking about I was there when Pastor Clemmer was born as a pastor, his ordination day and uh, up in Estes Park, Colorado and then, so Estes Park holds a dear place in my own heart because when I was growing up we would vacation in Estes Park. I went to college for a year in Fort Collins and we'd always go down to Estes Park. We'd go to the YMCA camp that was up there and there's a thing in Estes Park, so I started to tell this story to uh, Pastor Clemmer yesterday but I didn't finish because I wanted him to pay attention this morning. there's a play, there's a thing in Estes Park called the Crack. Did you ever? Okay, so it was this. If you drive off into this neighborhood and it, the neighborhood dead ended, the end of the street was uh, like in the national forest, and you could get out and walk up the hill, and there was this very strange rock formation. And uh, I remember when I was in college, we were up there and someone said, hey, let's go over to this crack. It was the wildest thing. So you, you you have to like jump across this little crag and then you climb up these two rocks, you kind of climb up the middle of these two rocks, and then there's a crack in the rock that goes sideways, kind of diagonal, and you shimmy through it like this and your feet are, like there's a hole where your feet are that kind of goes down like this. You shimmy across, and then you go down and around this little cliff, it's in the middle of this Mountain down around this little cliff, and then there's a chute that it must be like this big. And to go down the chute, you have to go feet first down this thing. It's probably eight feet long, and at the end of it, it just stops, and you're you're in this middle of this chute in the middle of this rock, and your feet are dangling there, and you can't feel the ground. It's like three feet, but the first time you're going through it, it's it's just crazy. It's a, it's a wild little like maze in the middle of the rocks in Estes Park. So after Pastor Clemmer's ordination. I told my friend, Pastor Emilius, who was here last year uh, at this conference, I said, hey, let's go do the, this crack thing that I know about. So his family and my family drove up into the mountains. Uh, we walked up into the thing. We found it. We c- crawled up in there. And I said, okay, now you've got to go. So you've got to lean back sideways. And you've got to shoot me down this thing. And I, and I go, And I couldn't get through. <laughs> and <laughs> And I would inhale as much as I could and I'd go like an inch and then exhale and get stuck. (laughs) Uh, And I got about my body halfway through this crack and I said, I think these rocks must have shifted. (laughs) (laughs) So they all made it through, no problem, but I was not going to get stuck there. I think it was uh, eight or nine years I was here last. Uh, You guys all look the same. Uh, It's really wonderful to be back. It's kind of an amazing thing uh, to be here and to see you. So God be praised for that. Uh, Our topic today is keep it clean, uh, living as Christians with a clean conscience in a filthy world. Uh, I think we'll break that topic into four sections. Uh, So we'll spend the first session this morning talking about the conscience. What the conscience is, what it means to have a conscience, how the conscience operates, what what the gift of the conscience means for us. The second session, we'll talk about the state of the world. Remember Isaiah when the, when the angel, the glory of the Lord appears over the temple, and he says, "I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips." So, what does it mean to live in the midst of a people of unclean lips? What does it mean What does it mean for the Christian to to live in this world that's that's handed over to to debauchery and disorder and so forth. And we'll talk a little bit about the state of things in the culture. Um, and you guys can press me whichever direction you'd like to go uh, on that. Then uh, in the afternoon, after lunch, we'll talk about the result of all of this. How does the church? How does the world treat the church? How does the world think of Christians? And this is really the topic of Christian suffering, Christian persecution, and martyrdom. It's a weird thing that the Christians have heroes, and our heroes are the martyrs. Like, what, you know, like what kind of hero is that? You want a hero that's supposed to be the guy who is victorious and strong. But the martyrs are those who were, who were killed for the faith. And so we have weird heroes. And so we'll talk about what that means. We'll talk about Christian martyrdom. And in the the fourth session, I'd like to tie it all together by asking why does the Lord do things this way? Why does he govern the world in such a way that his people, his little flock, is harassed and beleaguered and suffers in the world? What, what, What is the Lord up to? Here we get to the mystery of the fact that the Lord is the one who hides his glory. And he has revealed himself to us in suffering and affliction. So that's kind of the sketch for the day. And, and this is how, if you if you all would allow me, this is how I'd like to sort of organize. I'll, I'll kind of throw some stuff out for you for 45 minutes or so. Please feel free to interrupt if you have questions or, or, or points that you want to include or you want to clarify something. But I'll throw something out for 45, 50 minutes. And then I'm going to leave it up to you all to make it practical. So this is one of the dangers, right? You're like, Pastor, what does this matter? Well, we're going to leave time at the end for you to say, how does this matter for our school? How does this matter for our grandkids? How does this matter for what I read at night and all that sort of thing? So, so I'll leave a, a big chunk of time at the end for you all to press me towards making this practical, if that's okay. So that's the plot. Sound okay? And we have all day together. I, I'm not. I, all week, I think a cold has been creeping up on me, and it probably found me yesterday. Um, and so, my hope, I, I heard, I was reading that one of the greatest things to do, if you're not feeling well, uh, is to lecture for five hours. So, so that'll be great. Uh, I'll, I'll either get better or hopefully for you all, I'll get worse and the afternoon will be, I'll be somewhat delirious. And that'll be a really fun time. For all of us, in fact. So, at some point, Pastor Klemer might have to make the decision to cut the live stream. What is he even talking about up there? But we'll see how it goes. Uh, you have Bibles in the pews in front of you. I think that's one. Let's start with Romans chapter two. Um, I want to give you three pictures of the conscience. The Greek word for conscience does not well. The word for conscience does not appear in the Old Testament. That's an interesting thing. Probably in the Old Testament, the word that's there that comes closest to the conscience is the word heart. Uh, The heart, someone asked me this the other day, what does it mean in the Bible when we talk about the heart? And probably in the Old Testament and in the New, the heart is the whole inner workings of our lives. So you have the body, which is the outer working, and you have the heart, which is the inner working. So all the stuff that's happening on the inside, your thoughts, your memory, your imagination... That inner dialogue that you're having, your feelings, your convictions, your decisions, your confession, all that inner life, that's the heart. But there's a unique thing that the Lord has given to us as the children of Adam and Eve, and that is that part of our heart is built for self awareness. And that's the conscience. That's the capacity not just to feel something, but to recognize that you feel it. Not just to think something but to recognize that you think it. It's one of the differences between men and beasts. They can think, but they're not aware of their thoughts. They can feel, but they're not aware of their feelings. We have an awareness of that. So that we have this part of us that is, and not always, I mean sometimes you're asleep or whatever, but we have this part of us that can be aware of our own inner life so that we can think about it. Now, it's a great danger and a great responsibility that the Lord has given us there. But that conscience, the thing that the Lord has given it to us, especially after the fall, is so that we could, that conscience could make judgments. Especially about the things that we do. So I want to offer three pictures of the conscience. We get us started today. The picture of the umpire and the window and the courtroom. But this is the first picture, is if you if you would let me, is the picture of an umpire. Now, you guys have two baseball teams around here, don't you? That's got to be fun, right? Is that a big fight? <coughs> you, yeah, okay. <coughs> it's down in Texas. It's a big, it's either UT or A M. That's the big fight, you know, are you UT or A&M? But here it's got to be... Uh, White Sox or who? There's another team? I can't remember. <laughs> so, you know, the interesting thing about baseball is the umpire is there, you know, well, you have like six umpires, right? But imagine the home plate umpire. He sits there. He's not on either team. <laughs> well, it's questionable. Right? He's not supposed to be on either team. He's supposed to just sit there and make judgments about what's happening. He's not playing. He's not batting, he's not pitching, he's not catching, he's, he's just, he's not, he's there. In fact, he's so not part of the game that if the ball hits the umpire, it's a dead ball, right? The play stops. That's, that's, how, that's how, how not part of the game that the umpire is. And yet, the decisions that the umpire makes has a huge effect on how the game goes. If he calls a ball or a strike on a certain pitch if he calls the runner, safe or out on a certain play. So they're not part of the game, but their, their viewing of the game makes all the difference. And, you know this then, that umpires don't always get it right. They make mistakes. If you could think of your conscience then as the home plate umpire, it's watching. It's watching what you do to your neighbor, It's watching what your neighbor does to you. It's watching what your neighbor does to everybody else. And it's saying, that's right. That's wrong. That's a strike. That's a ball. It's making those judgments. Now, just like a normal home plate umpire, those judgments are not always right. So one of the important things that we have to discuss this morning is how do we train the conscience to make the right decisions? How do we train the conscience to know what's right and what's wrong? And it's also very interesting to see that in our own secular world that there's a whole attempt to retrain the conscience away from God's law and towards a different man's law. For example, you'll notice when you're talking to people that their conscience has been trained up on the morality of environmentalism. As a, just as an example that's kind of easy, that the biggest evil is adding carbon to the atmosphere and now they have a different standard of what's right and wrong. I was talking to an old pastor who told me, he says, yeah, I got a guy who cheated on his wife and to help himself feel better he bought an electric car <laughs> now to think about that this is an amazing sort of thing right like i have a bad conscience according to god's law but i have a good conscience according to whatever sort of environmental responsibility that's there wow now okay so the conscience is like an umpire making decisions that's right that's wrong but oftentimes it can get it wrong so if you're looking at romans chapter 2 paul talks about this in this way <clears throat> Wait a minute, how come I can't see it? I thought it was verse twenty one, but I have to look it up here. Two twenty-one. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aha, here it is. Verse fifteen, that's where it is. Start with verse fourteen. When the Gentiles who do not have the law. By nature, do those things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Now, this is an amazing verse. Paul is telling us that the conscience belongs to every single person, not just to the Christian, but also to the pagan. The Lord has written uh, uh, His standard of right and wrong on every human heart. And the result is that we're busy either accusing ourselves or excusing ourselves. Now the amazing thing is that the conscience, well and this is kind of giving the the punchline up here at the very beginning, the conscience can be bad in about 500 different ways, but there's only one way for it to be good, and there's no way for us to get to it. There's no way for us to get to a good conscience by our own worst and efforts. The only way to get to a good conscience is through the blood of Jesus. But, but the conscience is there either accusing or excusing, which sets most people up. And, and, and this is what I maybe want you to walk away with from the morning session here. That, that the way that we should understand people, their interactions with us, their interactions with the world, their interactions uh, with them, their family and things like this, it's all coming out of a conscience. They're all reacting to a conscience, either a good conscience or a bad conscience. Their conscience is accusing them or excusing them. The, the, the conscience is there, again, like the umpire. We're all out playing our life, pitching and batting and all this sort of stuff. But the conscience is there, and the way that the conscience declares the act, different activities to be in our own lives is going to affect the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we interact with one another, the way that we cut our hair. I mean, everything, top to bottom. It all has to do with the conscience. And the, and the pagan uh, there, here, the Gentile, is either accusing himself or excusing himself. Those are the two activities. So when you meet someone and you hear, boy, it sounds like there's a lot of excuses happening here. Or you meet someone and they say, um, all they can talk about is the bad stuff about themselves. You see, what's going on? That's the conscience. Okay. Now, let, I want to push that a little further. If you could go to, uh, let's look at Titus How come I don't have these written down in the right spot? Titus one thirteen. That's what I think I'm gonna <clears throat> see if we can find that. Here. If this is the right verse. Oh, brother. I, it looks like I wrote down all the scriptures for my Bible study the other day instead of the ones I want to find. Someone can tell me where the is. Pastor Clemmer can look it up for me. Where Paul talks about how to the pure, all things are pure. Verse 15. Aha, verse 15. Maybe I wanted to start at verse 13 and keep going. That's right. So let's start with... Uh, so, uh, oh, maybe it's because I'm looking at 2 Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be an exciting day. <laughs> Titus, now I'm there. Titus one thirteen. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. The, the, to the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled, everything is defiled. And so here's the picture that I want to give there. The conscience is not only like a home plate umpire making these judgments, the conscience is also like a window. It, it, if you could think of it, your heart, the way it... it I mean, Sorry, i got to get this so I can flip it off real quick and cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, The heart is like a window that you look in and out of, but the window can be either clean or unclean. Uh, And this is the point, is that if it's clean, if it's dirty, then everything looks dirty. I remember one time I was, uh, this is funny, I was vacuuming the living room. And I think it actually might have just been one time that I actually did that. (laughs) And I was vacuuming the living room and there was a spot on the floor and I vacuumed over it, and it was still there. And I vacuumed, and I said, I like, what's going on? So I got down, and I, I kind of poked at it to see what it was, if there's something stuck on the carpet. And I realized that it was a spot on the window. <laughs> it was a shadow on the floor, and I was, to, I was trying to clean it up, right? The window made everything inside look dirty. Or So here's something that I did one time, which I can't believe I lived through. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should... Uh, I started already. Uh, I was—I must have been in high school, and uh, my room was a mess. I know that's hard to imagine—a dirty high school boys' room. And uh, and my dad came into the, my room and he said, "This place is filthy. You need to clean this room up right now." And so I got up and I went over and I turned off the lights. <laughs> It's clean now, right? Can't see any of the dirt. But this is, so this is what happens. If the window is dirty, this is, this is what happens. Everything inside looks spotted, mottled. Everything inside looks dirty. Everything outside looks dirty. If you look out a dirty car window, this happened the other day, we were up in Colorado, and, uh, and because we have Texas uh, windshield wiper fluid, it was freezing on the window and it wouldn't wipe out. So the window was just horrible. You could hardly see anything. Everything inside looks dirty. Everything outside looks dirty. And then what happened, this is the the crazy thing that happens, is you know the dirtier a window gets, the more it starts to reflect back on you. It becomes like a mirror. And instead of actually being able to look outside of the window, you end up seeing yourself there. (laughs) This is what happens in the conscience. It's, it's quite amazing and, and quite interesting. The, the psychologists call it projection. But it's really just a function of what happens when you have a dirty conscience. Because now, because the thing that is troubling your own conscience, you start to see on everybody else. Your own sins, your own inclinations, your own guilt, they start to show up. Your own shame, your own suffering, that starts to show up on everybody else. This is one of the bad things of having a bad conscience, an unclean conscience, is everyone seems uh, unclean, impure. There's a, there's a verse in Numbers. It's one of Luther's favorite verses to talk about this. It says that the wicked run at the sound of the rustling of a leaf. So that, so, so that uh, when you have a bad conscience, the smallest thing can frighten you. Right? Okay? Uh, we um, Carrie tells a story Carrie, my wife, does not she likes to go camping but she does not like to go tent camping because she's just afraid that she's going to be eaten by a bear and I don't think that's a rational fear if it ever did happen though I'd feel terrible <laughs> so, so she tells the story that one time that she was camping with some friends up in the mountains in New Mexico and they heard a bear sniffing around outside the tent. And they're like petrified, shaking in the middle of the tent. And they heard the bear walk all the way up to the tent and scratch, and sniff, and walk around the tent two or three times, and then walk away like this. It's just terrifying. And they went out and they got their flashlights to see what it was, and they found the raccoon prints. <laughs> there, there. but this is, this is the kind of the, the thing that happens when we have a bad conscience is that it just amplifies everything the, the shaking of a leaf sounds like an army coming to get us when you have a bad conscience and you get two red lights in a row you're like oh the, the, this is the last judgment the Lord is angry at me and punishing me most people are operating with a bad conscience. It's just something important to understand. And this means that they're, they're on high alert for everything. Because for the impure, nothing is pure. Everything that they do is, adds defilement. On the other hand, what happens if the window is clean? We have it here in Paul, who says, Through the pure, all things are pure. But let's think about what that means. When the window is clean, does that mean that everything outside looks clean and everything inside looks clean? No. When you have the window that's clean, that means you can see things for how they are. So you can see the things that are dirty and the things that are clean, clearly. There was an old tradition, and this was not just in the... This was in the Lutheran church also, although I've hardly found any Lutherans talking about it. Now, there's an old tradition that says that to be an orthodox theologian, you have to operate with a good conscience. Because if you go to to the world with a bad conscience, it's distorted. But if you go to the Bible with a bad conscience, it's also distorted. You're taking the scriptures up into this work of accusing or excusing you. And so that you have to engage the scriptures, you have to engage God with a good and clean conscience if you want to see things for how they really are. Now, that's going to be important for us because what we want to be able to do is to look at ourselves first and say, you know, that's clean and that's unclean. That's good and that's evil. That's right and that's wrong. And also to be able to look at the world and say, that's good and that's bad. That's clean and unclean. That's, That's helpful, that's dangerous, and so forth. So we want to have a good conscience so we can engage in the world in that way. Okay. so the picture of the conscience one is of a home plate umpire Romans 2 the second is the window which I think is very helpful although let me just give you a quick warning about that so like don't if uh, next time you're talking to someone and they accuse you of lying don't say oh I understand that you're a liar and your bad conscience is projecting your image on me and so just be careful on how you use that wisdom because it's not always right it's not always right, but there's a tendency that's there, so you can start to recognize it. But just, uh, just a warning, just to be careful with that. The third picture that I'd like to give, and I think this is the most helpful picture of the conscience, is that the conscience is like a little courtroom. Uh, in this way, the conscience is shaped like heaven is shaped. And remember how things are shaped up in heaven. Uh, let's maybe Let's spend a little time in Revelation 12. Revelation, revelation 12 is the center of the vision of Revelation. Remember what is revelation a vision of Jesus. Jesus, that's right. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. The word revelation comes from the Greek apocalypse. Apocalypsis. Uh that means from the veil. Is it I always I I always want to say, my son's getting married this summer, maybe he'll let me do this, because when the bride takes off the veil, that's an apocalypse, you know? And I always want to say, it's time for the apocalypse. None of the brides have gone for that yet. (laughs) I keep trying. This is a beautiful text. I think we'll come back to it in a, in a little bit. But this gives us a great picture of heaven and how heaven changes when Jesus ascends into heaven. And, and this is given to us to reshape also our own conscience. Okay, so you remember the throne <clears> room? <throat> the prophets in the Old Testament were marked by the fact that they went to the throne room of God. They got to see what was going on up there. And there was a bunch of things that were happening in the throne room. For, for example, God was talking to God. The Father and the Son were talking to each to each other. Some of the, the the best passages in the Scripture are those passages that give us the conversation between the Father and the Son. You are my Son today, I have begotten you, Psalm 2. Or sit here at my right hand till I make your enemy your footstool, Psalm 110. Or, um, or the, the Son to the Father. How about this? The most dramatic text in all the Scripture and most wonderful is the Father talking to the the Son, talking to the Father. And what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's beautiful. So the Psalms have all these passages. In fact, if you want a collection of the conversation between the Father and the Son, you can just look at the first couple of chapters of Hebrews. And it says to the angels, He says this, but to the Son, He says this. It just goes through the passages. So in the throne room, God is talking to God. In the throne room, also, God is being praised. Remember that the elders are given their twenty-four elders are given their throne or their uh, their uh, crowns, and what do they do with their crowns? They throw them before the Lord at his, at his feet. The Lord is receiving prayers. That's pictured in the in the heavenly court as the incense. Remember the incense as the prayers of the saints. How beautiful is that? And then there's sending that's always happening. The prophets are sent from the throne room. Uh, Jeremiah 23, the the true prophets stood in the presence of God and they were sent forth from there. So those four important things, praise and, and prayer and conversation and sending. But maybe the most important thing that is there in the throne room of God is that that throne is a judgment seat it's not like our government where we took the three elements of being a king and we divided them up into three parts so you have the legislative branch and the judicial branch and the executive branch it all in the ancient world that all belonged to the king so the king was also the supreme court remember solomon who he was hearing these court cases and he said to divide the baby what a crazy decision uh... but it, it sorted out so so that that throne in heaven is also a place of judgment And now this is frightful. Because who's there as the accuser? The devil. The devil is the accuser. That's what the word Satan means. The accuser. And he's accusing us day and night before the throne of God. But here's the beautiful picture of Revelation 12. Is that after Jesus is born, he's caught up into that throne room. And when he enters into that throne room, now there's no more place for the devil. And so he's kicked out. Let's see how it goes Revelation 12:1 now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars that goes back to the dream of Jacob remember and the, and his family and the stars bowed down to worship him and that was one of the dreams that got him sold into slavery in Egypt so this is Israel here and this pregnant woman is a picture of the Old Testament. Maybe you could do this next time you see a pregnant woman say, Oh, you look very much like the Old Testament. Let me know how that goes. (laughs) And depending on how it goes, you could say that I said it or not. Uh, But the whole Old Testament is is a pregnant woman. Why? Genesis 3.15, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Genesis 3.15 where God says to Adam and Eve in the garden... Your seed will crush the seed of the devil. Well, the Lord is talking to the devil. Her seed will crush you, your head. So from from the Garden of Eden until Mary, the Old Testament is pictured as a woman getting ready to have birth. This is amazing. Well, more on that in a bit. There's nothing in the world that the devil hates more. If you made a list of the things the devil hates to look at, it's number one, Jesus on the cross. Number two, a woman with child. He hates it. Okay, we'll talk about that more. Being with child, she cried in labor pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's the Bible passage that tells us that one third of the angels fell with the devil. So that of all the angels God created, a third of them were part of the rebellion and two thirds were not. Which, on the one hand, seems like a lot. Like, boy, there's a lot of demons running around. But on the other hand, it's two to one. So we got numbers on our side, which is great. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Things have changed nowadays. They don't let dragons into the birthing rooms, but it's it's a regulation, some sort of health or code, I think. But you see that as all the trouble of the Old Testament, right? Is that they're, they're trying to, the devil's trying to kill the baby. She bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in His throne. So just like that, the birth, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, wham! And Jesus now comes into the throne room of God with His victory. Okay? Now the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. They should feed her there 1,260 days. Whenever it's a bad thing, it's days. Whenever it's a good thing, it's years. In the book of Revelation, I think. But then what happens in heaven? Verse 7. This might surprise you. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. Now you say to yourself... Uh, Pastor, I thought that wars were on Earth, not in heaven. And when we get to heaven, there's going to be no more war, no more crying, no more all this sort of stuff. But here it says it that there's a war in heaven. And what caused the war? The ascension of Jesus. So what is the war about? Can you imagine? Here's the devil standing before the throne of God, accusing you you of your sin day and night, bringing all your sins before God, and he doesn't have to lie. We've given him plenty of evidence. He doesn't have to make stuff up. We sin all the time. So the devil is bringing our sins before the throne of God in heaven. And and, and the the Lord is hearing those accusations. But now Jesus comes into that place as our defendant. The Greek word is paraclete. Remember 1 John? We have an advocate, a paraclete with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So that Jesus enters into that throne room with the evidence of our innocence. And the evidence is what? Does Jesus go to the throne of God in heaven and say, here the devil's accusing me of whatever sin. And Jesus says, no, Brian didn't really do that. Or it wasn't that bad. Or he didn't mean it. Or whatever. No. That's not your defense. Your defense before the throne of God in heaven is this. That sin is died for. That Jesus brings the evidence into the heavenly court. This is the Hebrews 10 passage that we were talking about earlier. He brings the evidence of His blood. And His blood is exhibit A for your righteousness. So the devil says, You've sinned. And Jesus says, Objection? That sin is died for. And then the devil says, Well, here's this one. And Jesus says, Objection? I suffered already for that sin. Or here's another sin, and Jesus says, Objection, Your Honor! I suffered already. It's covered by my blood. I've taken care of it. Do you see it? So there is no more any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing to accuse. So that there's a war that breaks out, because everything that the devil is doing in heaven is deemed out of order. And so the Lord has to have the bailiff, St. Michael, remove the devil from the courtroom it's quite he didn't want to go he loves it there so war broke out in heaven verse 7 <coughs> Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail nor is a place found for them in heaven any longer so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world he was cast to the earth his angels are
0: cast out with him
1: And I heard verse 10 a loud voice saying in heaven now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. See? And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony and they did not love their lives to death. We're going to hone in on that verse after lunch. It's a beautiful verse. Just beautiful. Okay. So now, here's the picture. Heaven is this court, and we are the accused, and God is the judge, and the devil is the accuser, and Jesus is our advocate. Okay? Now, the same picture is, the same thing is happening in your own conscience. So your own conscience is a little mirror of the heavenly court. So in that conscience of yours, God sits as judge, and the devil comes to accuse you of your sins. And if you don't feel it or know it, you just have to pause for a little bit. Maybe go for a walk after lunch and and listen for a bit, and you realize that that's what's going on. Now, we are always trying to shift up the shape of our own conscience, and one of the best ways to do it is instead of being the accused in the conscience, we say, well, no, let's actually put other people on the accusation. I want to step down and I want to accuse other people. You've met people like this, that their own conscience is not accusing them, it's accusing everybody else. In fact, it's one of the ways to to remember that you still have a conscience. I remember my uncle Jim. He was we were talking one time about trying to convince people that Jesus is the Lord, and we, I said, you know, most people don't think that they're, that they uh, that there's a right or wrong. Most people are kind of postmodern; they don't think there's a good or bad. And he said to me, you should punch them in the face and see if they still think that. <laughs> Because ironically enough, our consciences are very hardened to our own sins, but very sensitive to the sins committed against us. We don't necessarily like going into court ourselves, but we love it when our enemies are there, or the people around us are there. Dr. J. Budashevsky, who wrote an... Uh, he, let's see, the essay was The Revenge of the Conscience, but the book was a book called What We Can't Not Know. He talked about this. He said that while we might be very hardened in the conscience to the sins that we commit, we're always very tender to the sins that are being committed against us. (laughs) I could probably talk for hours and hours bad about people that I disagree with, but if I hear a whisper that they were talking bad about me, whoa, am I offended, right? Isn't that how it goes? So we, we try to shape up the conscience so that, that we're not the one that's being judged, but we're rather the judge. Or we use a different standard. Or we put someone else on the dock and we accuse them instead of ourselves. So we, are to, so we have this little conscience, this little courtroom in our own heart. And this is how it should be. The Ten Commandments are the standard. God is the judge. The devil is the accuser. Jesus is our advocate, or the Holy Spirit is our advocate. And the declaration that happens in our conscience is the same declaration that happens in heaven. The declaration is that Jesus has prevailed over our sin. That Jesus has taken away our guilt and our shame. And that he forgives us. Now, how does that happen? I've been trying to think of a picture for this. The best I can think of is, you know, have you seen like the, the old... Kings, like in the Middle Ages, they would have a, a ring, a signet ring, and they would, like, seal something with their ring, so that they would make an, an impression on the wax with the ring that they had there. That, that there's a way that the heavenly court makes an impression on our own conscience. It, it shapes up our own conscience. And if you, would, if you would allow it, I'd like to say that the way that that happens is in the liturgy. The liturgy is a reflection of heaven on earth, the heavenly courtroom being reflected now for the sake of impression and conscience. So in heaven, God is the judge and Jesus is there advocating for us. And the declaration of God the Father is that your sins are forgiven. So then you come to church and you know what you do it, when you come to church is the same thing you do when you go to court. You make a plea. One time, I went to court. This was so dumb. I got a speeding ticket, and instead of paying the speeding ticket, this was when I was in college. I was dumb. I mean, D U M E dumb. And and I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to pay. I'm going to go to court, and so I can see the wheels of justice turning. <laughs> so I go to court. And uh how do you plead? That's the first you're talking to the defendant. How do you gonna plead? I said, Well, it's guilty, I guess. Okay. So just line up there and tell the judge you're guilty. Why are you even here? <laughs> kind of thing. So I'm sitting there waiting my turn, and not kidding, the lady in front of me stands up and the judge reads off the like the charges. And I, I was trying to imagine what was happening. It's like So, you've been accused of uh, being drunk while your ten-year-old daughter was driving in a reckless manner with an unroadworthy vehicle, pulling an unroadworthy trailer. Like, what was happening that day? You know, like, ten-year-old <laughs> girl driving down the car in the street with pulling a trailer behind with the drunk mom and the driver in the passenger seat. Or I'm like, what? I'm like, wow. This judge is gonna throw the book at her. And and the judge says, and you have decided to plead guilty of hauling an unroadworthy trailer. And she says, yes, Your Honor. And he says, forty-dollar court fee. Case dismissed. What? I said, here I am with just a speeding ticket. This is gonna be great. You know, I wasn't. I didn't have any. Ten, I wasn't drunk. I didn't have a ten-year-old driving. You know, it's great. <laughs> So I stand up before the judge, and the judge says, will you plead guilty of having a speeding? I said, yes, Your Honor. Kind of as nice as I could. And he says, oh, 50 hours of community service and $40 court fee. Case dismissed. I said, what? So that was the wheels of justice. Oh yeah, so that's... it. And then I did my hours, but the problem was I did them in all these different spots. So, like I... I alphabetized the CDs in the college radio station. I cleaned the keyboards at the college library with a Q-tip for 10 hours. And then I helped build a Habitat for Humanity house for 30 hours. So I sent all my stuff in, and uh, but I didn't have the proper signatures on a couple of them. So I got a I got a, uh, a letter in the mail that said, you didn't have all the right forms filled out, so we're putting a warrant out for your arrest. And I got... I got that letter, and the next day I flew to Australia. I'm like, I'm out of here. But that happened in, in Castle Rock, Colorado. And so then we, of all things, we get a call to Colorado so that I've got to go through Castle Rock like at once a week, and I'm sure that the police are going to pull me over and like have me sprawled out on the concrete. I don't know how to see if it's the statute of limitations. If someone knows that, by the way, if anyone has legal advice, you can. Tell. Okay, but the point of all of this. The point of all of this nonsense is that... Oh yeah, when you go into the court, the first question is, how do you plead? Well, that's exactly what happens when you come into church. How do you plead? You come before the presence of God. Do you come into His presence as innocent or guilty? Now, what's the very first thing we do in church? We confess our sins. In other words, we appear before the throne of God... And we do not declare our own innocence. Every other religion in the world is built on declaring every, the person's innocence, making a case for their innocence, making an argument for their innocence, giving evidence for their innocence. We come before the throne of God not declaring that we're innocent, but that we are guilty. I, a poor, miserable sinner. That's what, we are not here to argue for our innocence. We are are here to confess our guilt. And then what happens? What's the declaration of God regarding your guilt? Does He give you a list of things you need to do to fix it? To make it right? Does He throw you in prison? He absolves you. He says, through the lips of the pastor, I forgive you all your sins. Now, why can the pastor say that? I remember when I was becoming a, a Lutheran, and we went into the liturgy, and the pastor, I, I, man, I did not know what was going on. Why is that guy wearing a dress? What's he looking at the wall for? What's he, what's he see up there? <laughs> but the most offensive thing was, what is... Who does he think he is forgiving my sins? I asked the pastor one time. We were walking out of church and I said, how is it that you can forgive sins? I thought only God can forgive sins. How is it that you can forgive sins? And so he, he said, can I see your Bible? Which is so great because I think if he would have showed me John 20 and his own Bible, I would have been like, what kind of Lutheran Bible is that? That's like a trick Bible. So he says, let me see your Bible, and he opens it up in John 20, and he shows me the tag the words of Jesus. Whoever sinned, you forgive. They're forgiven. And I said, wow, how many times have I read those words and not seen them? Wowzers. But why can the pastor do that? Why can he forgive? Does he have the power to forgive? No. He's declaring what's already true in heaven. So that God the Father from His throne declares you to be holy and innocent and righteous. And now the pastor declares you to be holy and innocent and righteous. And that now shapes up your own conscience to know that you are holy and innocent and righteous. So that there's a continuity between the heavenly court and the earthly liturgy and your own heart. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. When we look at the liturgy, and we're like, why is it there if we don't understand how it's acting in the conscience? So the conscience is an umpire. The conscience is a a window, and the conscience is a courtroom. Okay. Now I want to give you a couple of lists about the conscience, if we could. Uh, but let me just check on our time. How are we doing on time? What time is it? Nine forty-five. So we have a half an hour. Let me let me just run through a couple of quick lists on the conscience. I'm just going to kind of rattle them off for you and explain them just a little bit. And then I'll, I'll, uh, so maybe 10 minutes, and then I'll let you guys ask questions. Um, First, here's the four things the conscience can know. Okay? Four things the conscience can know. Number one, the conscience knows sins that you commit against other people. That's what we call guilt. The conscience is watching what you're doing and saying, that's right and that's wrong. The conscience also knows. Sins that other people commit against you. That's we mentioned that the conscience is oftentimes hardened towards our sin to others, but sensitive to other sins against us. And uh, uh, and this is important that we want to. We we probably want to be the other way around. We want to be much more sensitive to the sins that we commit against others, and much less worried about the sins others commit against us. But that often gets flipped around. The conscience also knows sins that other people commit against other people. It's observed. Your conscience is active when you're watching the news. And you're watching the stories. All the wicked things that are unfolded. Your conscience is making judgments. And then the fourth thing that your conscience knows is that something is just not right. This is everybody's conscience knows these four things. Even the unbeliever's conscience. So that when you hear about like the earthquakes that happen in Turkey and Syria, like, ah, it's not supposed to be this way. That's the conscience that knows, has a general sense that there's something that's wrong in the world. It's not supposed to be like this. When somebody dies, we have that deep down instinctive knowledge that it's not supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to die. When someone's hungry, we have this deep knowledge, this deep insight that it's not supposed to be that way. When there's injustice or whatever, we have that. In fact, anything that deviates from the Garden of Eden, the conscience deep down feels that deviation. Good. So there's four things that conscience can know. Here's another list: four things that affect the conscience. Now, this is an amazing thing that the conscience is a tool that is that is sensitive to its own context. I'll give you an example. I was uh, talking to someone on the phone. This was a long time ago, so my son Andrew must have been five or so. And he was swinging on the swing in the backyard. And I was talking probably to another pastor. You know it's bad for your conscience to be talking on the phone to pastors. And I was talking, and I was really worked up about something. And I said, man, that guy is a real jerk. And Andrew, my son... Heard me say that. I'd forgotten that he was there, and he goes, "Ooh!" Dad called someone a bad word. Dad called someone a bad word, and he jumps off the swing and he's running inside to report on my. <laughs> and that was right. But it's was, it was an amazing sort of thing to realize that if I would have been thinking that he was right there next to me, I would have never said it. That. So there's four things that actually affect the way that our conscience goes, and it's, it's an amazing how sensitive a tool is. I, I remember uh, we, we went on this retreat, we take the kids, the, um, uh, the the catechism age and youth up to a catechism retreat in Colorado, and one of the games we play is this game that we invented called Catechism Commando, which is a kind of goofy game. But it involves pastors hiding in the woods and kids looking for them while the counselors are trying to find the kids and put them in jail, and it's dark. And so, a handful of we put camouflage on our face and hide in all camo. And I remember there was a couple of times where I was stepped on by a kid looking for me, and they didn't. find so it's one of these kind of things. But the the disadvantage of that game, and one of the reasons of, is that you're sitting there in the woods and you're listening to the kids talk to each other when they don't think any pastors can hear them. And and so every morning the next day, I have to chastise them about their language, uh, which is an amazing sort of thing, how your language changes depending on where you are. I remember when I was a kid, the same sort of thing. I kind of had a filthy mouth when I was a when I was a high school kid and, But I never, none of those words would ever escape my mouth When I was around my parents so, and, and this is why Your conscience is constantly telling you What are the standards that you're to be working on And it's, just, it's almost instantaneous It's amazing Okay, So the four things that are, affect the conscience are Number one, your peers Number two, the culture Number three, the law Man's law and number four, God's law. And we could put natural law in there if you wanted to put it as a fifth. So that, so that your conscience is affected by these things. The, the thing, uh, it's, a, it's a wild verse in 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul talking about the resurrection. oh I don't want to blow up. There you go. <clears throat> He's talking about the resurrection and all these amazing things. And he says that bad company ruins good habits. What a crazy thing to say, right in the middle of this chapter on the resurrection. But Paul's making this awareness that our peers affect our conscience. Our culture affects our conscience. And this has to do with the culture that we create and the culture that we consume. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why... This peer business is one of the reasons why it's so difficult being a teenager is because that's when your peer group is shifting from your family to your friends. And... Family is always a better place for the conscience than friends. Uh, But you're kind of breaking away from your family, you have your friends. It's one of the reasons probably why a lot of people... When they go to high school or college, they leave the church. And then when they get married and have children, they come back to the church. Because the context of their life and their, their who their peers are is either helping or hurting their conscience. Now, here's something very important, actually, on this topic, on the idea of peers affecting the conscience. And that is that we have to realize that God has made us to be friends, to be good friends. And that in, in that act of friendship, we are there to help cultivate our friends' consciences. It's a very strange thing that, that the conscience only feels the pressure that's exerted on it. It doesn't feel the pressure that it exerts. So especially when I'm talking to the young adults and teenagers and stuff like this, I'll say, you know, the, you know how you feel the pressure from your friends to act in certain ways and do certain things? They feel that same pressure from you. And they say, no, they don't. Because it, we only feel the pressure that's exerted on us we don't feel the pressure that we exert, but for us to recognize, for parents to recognize that you're exerting pressure on your children's conscience, for friends to recognize that we're exerting pressure on our friends' conscience, and that could be for good or ill. We can be pressing them towards righteousness or pressing them towards sin. So our peers affect the conscience, our culture affects the conscience. This is why it's important what kind of music we listen to, what kind of media we consume. This is why there's a culture war that's going on to say what's right and wrong in the culture it's because the culture affects the conscience and then also the law affects the conscience there's a weird thing that's happening when I'm driving 65 miles an hour versus when I'm driving 67 miles an hour if I see a policeman and I look down and I'm going over the speed limit or the speed limit there's something very different that happens He's, he's on my, if I'm going 65 I'm so glad he's there but if I'm going over the speed limit, then I'm, I'm worried now that he's not to get me. So that our relationship to the law, to man's law, also affects the conscience. And then there's God's law, which should be the thing that most affects the conscience. The Ten Commandments calibrate and sensitize the conscience. So the Ten Commandments are telling us this is what's right and this is what's wrong. This is how we should think about these things. Uh, and so the Ten Commandments are doing that work. Now, if you just see those four things that inform the conscience, let's just pretend like you had a a sin that you really liked and you did not want your conscience to trouble you for your sin. How would you go about silencing the conscience? Well, you can change your peers so that everybody around you has the same sin, You could change the culture so that that sin is either celebrated or accepted in all the art and all the things that you see. And then you could change the law so that that sin was not illegal, but was in fact legal. And then you argue that the scriptures are wrong whenever they condemn that particular sin. That's how you do it. So that the sin, so that your conscience no longer accuses you. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I know, I can think of pen... Sins that are just treated just like that, right? I mean, we—this is—you can abortion, divorce, gay marriage, uh, whatever it is. That's the pattern. It's like a playbook to to do it because you want to you want to avoid any of these things troubling your conscience. Okay. Um, One last thing, then. Let's talk about how to have a good conscience, and then then we'll do some Q and A. There was a guy named Kinky Friedman. How many of you have heard of Kinky Friedman? A couple of you? He's a Texas guy. He was a, he had a band, he's a honky tonk guy. He had a band called Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. And his most famous song was, They Don't Make Jews Like Jesus Anymore. I'm not making this up. <laughs> Kinky Friedman ran for governor of Texas a few years back, and my uncle was his campaign manager, which is wild. So, so Kinky was on Bill O'Reilly. I've got to find this. because So I, my uncle died a few months ago, and Kinky was at his funeral. And I went up to ask Kinky if this really happened that he was on Bill O'Reilly. And Bill O'Reilly said, Tinky, (laughs) I don't think that's the name his mom gave him, but... (laughs) Tinky, you say that you're a Judeo-Christian. What does that mean? And he says, it means I've got both Moses and Jesus living in my heart. (laughs) Which is blasphemy. And also hilarious, because that's probably how most people are. So I asked him at the funeral, I said, Did you go on Bill O'Reilly and say that you had both Moses and Jesus living in your heart? And he says to me, Sounds funny enough. (laughs) His whole platform for governor of Texas was he was going to give raises to the teachers, and that was it. Like, keep Texas weird. Anyway, this idea... uh, Moses and Jesus living in the heart this is the idea of most American Christians or maybe it's just even Moses living in the heart there's a beautiful little line from Luther where he's talking about the conscience and he says the conscience is a small little room there's only room for one and if Moses is the one who's living in the conscience then we have a bad conscience it's working, it's telling the truth but it speaks only of our sin and our guilt and our shame. So that the good conscience comes from Jesus taking up a place in the conscience. Jesus with his blood and righteousness who is there, is there in the conscience uh, not accusing or excusing but forgiving and absolving. The, the conscience, remember like a dirty window, is so stained that the only thing strong enough to wash off the stains is the blood of Jesus. That's it. So the way to a good conscience, before God, is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Through His suffering and death, through His resurrection and ascension, through His kindness and His peace. Jesus alone. There's nothing else there in the the conscience. Just Jesus. Now, it's a little bit different in having a good conscience before our neighbor, but this is the main thing that we need to know. It's the blood of Jesus that takes away sin. So that we we will one day face the judgment seat of God, and we will will face the judgment of God, not with all of our works or evidences of our own innocence in our hands, but rather in the same way that Jesus expelled the devil, we, we come with nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but his suffering and righteousness. And that's the way to, to a good conscience. Okay, so there's a few things on the conscience to think about. I think we probably have about 20 minutes or so, if that's right. So let's do, let me, you guys, now force me to make that practical. Or if you have any other questions or thoughts, I just would love to hear what those are. Yes, sir. that's a really it's a re- very good question so the question is how do we distinguish between the Christ in us and the conscience in this sort of... um so there's an old debate let me take two steps back and I'll take a running start at that there's an old debate about us about people and, and and in the church and it is are we body and soul or are we body soul and spirit it's the dichotomous versus the trichotomous view of humanity or something like this and people always love to fight about this Luther in a beautiful place it's in fact in his commentary on the Magnificat says we should think of ourselves like the, like the tabernacle in the Old Testament the outer court is our body the tabernacle is our soul and our spirit is the Holy of Holies so that we have a place if you want to think about it a, a, a psychic place that is the spirit but if the Holy Spirit has not taken up residence in our spirit then it's dead there's nothing there but, so so that that spirit is like the conscience. It's a place of, apart from Christ, it's a place of accusation or excuse. But when the Holy Spirit comes, now it becomes a place of absolution and, comfort and life. So that the Holy Spirit comes into our own hearts and consciences and declares the things that Jesus has done to be true. So is it us, we could say it like this, it happens in us, but it's, it comes from outside of us. I think that's a, that's how I like to think of it. Does that help? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I would say that the heart is a is stand-in for all of the different things. So our inner life consists of a number of different sort of activities. Oh yeah, sure. So the question is how does the heart uh, factor into this discussion of the conscience because of the, the prophecy from Ezekiel which says, I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Which is beautiful. We have to have that text for the, for the sermon tomorrow where Jesus says if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But we realize it's not our hand that causes us to sin, it's our heart that causes us to sin. And that's a dangerous operation to cut your heart out. But that's what the Lord does. He takes the heart out and gives us a new one. So if we think of the heart as a stand-in for all of the internal activity of the human life, it includes the will, which is where we determine to do things. It includes our desires and appetites, which are very closely related, but two different things. What do we want? What do we desire? Our longing, that's concupiscence. It includes our thoughts, our mind, which is also the mind of the past, so our memory is there, and our minds toward the future, so our imagination is there, part of the heart. And then there's that sort of self-awareness of all those things, and that's probably where the conscience comes in. So the Lord gives us complete inner renewal, and part of that is that the conscience is clean. Yeah, great question. Uh, there was a hand over this way. Yes, sir, and then back this way.
2: pagans can know the law in their sort of conscience. How how is it that the conscience can be swayed
1: in a different way if, if, if it's supposed to be written on the Right. Great question. So if the conscience is written on the hearts, how can it be swayed? <coughs> can you can you guys imagine this might be very hard to imagine. But could you imagine a baseball team paying off an umpire? This is the idea. Or imagine, here the Ten Commandments are on the wall of the heart, but we're like, I don't really like that one. So I'm going to mark it off. I I was in a Twitter debate, which is always a good idea. I would recommend to you all to get in in Twitter debates, because I published just a little short little essay last week on five critical questions to ask about living together before marriage and chastity. And I had a guy jump on there who said, this kind of biblical idolatry is doing so much harm, and I hope you'll repent and use your platform for better things. So I was fighting with this guy. I looked up his, his bio. He's polyamorous, which I don't know exactly what that means, but uh, bisexual, etc. And so I'm, I'm just asking him questions. And, uh, and you could see how he had reshaped the Ten Commandments. So it wasn't, you shall not commit adultery. It was instead, you shall do no harm. And he, had, he was trying there to rewrite the law on his own heart. So that instead of condemning him, it was affirming him. It, was accus- it wasn't accusing, it was excusing him. And so, the, so you can take the commandments of God and you can make them abstract. That's one of the ways to do it. For example, this is what we see in like, the decision toward um, um, the Burgerfeld decision, which legalized same-sex marriage. When you read the rationale behind that decision, it is an abstraction of the law, and it takes the commandments and it makes it simply love. So, you know, if you want when When Jesus wants to summarize the commandments, he says... You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You should love your neighbors yourself. Paul reduces it down even further. He says, all the law is, is uh, included in this, love. So that love is like the one word summary of the law. But the problem is, then we can, we can militarize love in the conscience against the specific commands of God. So, <clears throat> so the guy says to his girlfriend... Oh, We don't need to worry about chastity because we love each other. Well, no. Love, boyfriend and girlfriend, towards one another, looks like you shall not commit adultery. That's what love looks like. But we try to use love to then abstract the commandments. It's, a, it's an amazing game that we can play because we are experts at self-delusion. And so everyone who's, not everybody, but most people who are sinning are are, have convinced themselves that whatever it is that they're doing is in fact a good work. So, what's the law written on the conscience? Is the Ten Commandments. But we're always trying to, like, like we are in courts, you know, try to take down the Ten Commandments and put up our own laws. And you can hear it when it goes like this, uh, when someone says to me, Pastor, yes, but doesn't God? And normally it's something like this. I know that divorce is wrong, but doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, now that's the law written on their conscience. God wants me to be happy. What a horrible law to have written on the conscience. But how do we respond to that? I think the best answer is, well, obviously God doesn't want you to be happy. Look who he gave you to be married to. I don't, I don't think they taught us that at the seminary. But. <laughs> but you can sort of see what, I mean, whatever we're using to stand up against the commandments, to excuse ourselves, that's our remaking of the law written on the heart. Yes?
2: I think in a way you, at least pretty well answered my question. <laughs> but I was thinking about when C.S. Lewis in Premier Christianity talked about how even children have, rudimentary elements of the conscience. Mm-hmm. And it starts with an idea of fairness. You know, one kid gets three pieces of candy and another kid gets two. Right. You know, and it takes room from there. And so when you talk about the conscience being everything, whether they're Christian or not, right. the idea is, is that God is preparing us for belief. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that happens, I guess, is that lies into the picture. Mm-hmm. And so you have a conscience, but then you start to earnestly believe that just aren't true. <clears throat> and as I look at the culture of I guess that's something that troubles me really when I think about it. Is is that I know lots of people who really care about who believe things that I think are clearly very wrong and against God's law, but they're very earnest and sincere in their belief. Right.
1: Otherwise, our
2: yeah, conscience gets.
1: Yeah, we'll get into, the, into that, that in our next session a little bit. So just to start the idea that We see the conscience written on the heart, even in the children, because they're always saying that's not fair. But notice that that protest, that's not fair, is almost always from the one who gets the smaller piece of cotton candy, never from the one that gets the bigger piece. (laughs) I mean, sometimes you get a good kid who, like you give one kid... $20 $20 and the other kid $2 and the one who gets 20 says, oh, it's not fair, divvies it up. But normally it's the one who's on the short end of the stick. So we're motivated especially to the sins committed against us, right? That's, that's one of those indications. But then this is, this is what I want you to do. So what you suggested there is exactly right. This is that, that when we start to engage in the culture war and when we're looking at the things that are going on around us, to see them in terms of the conscience. And to see the person that you're talking with, or arguing against, or that you're fighting with, or that you're struggling with, or that you're trying to invite a church to understand that they're, they are operating according to the conscience. People do not act rationally; they act according to Romans two, either accusing or excusing. That's where that's where that's the seat of most of our actions come from, from the conscience. And this is going to make sense now about why, for example, the church is so hated. It's probably because the church is the, the thing that God uses to activate the conscience. And people are trying to escape the pain of the conscience. And to do that, I have to silence the voice of the law. And where, how can I do that? By dismissing the church. Or accepting the church when the church has given up preaching the law at all. Or whatever. So more on that next. That's a good... That's a good lead in to what's coming. Yes, sir? What you say there is more than one conscience or more
2: than one type of
1: conscience? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question more than one conscience, more than one type of conscience, yeah. The conscience can be hardened or softened, the conscience can be sensitive or unsensitive, the con- and there's a lot of different ways to think about it. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, I see. Yeah. What
2: is their conscience
1: compared to our conscience? Yeah. Yeah. There's probably so the question is so what about people who say, "Hey, that person seems evil. What's going on with the conscience there?" There's a lot of if you think of the conscience as a courtroom, there's probably five or six different ways to really mess it up. So if we see the the way that God has set, made the conscience is that you see the Ten Commandments posted on the wall, and God is the judge, and the devil is the accuser who's being kicked out, and Jesus is the, is the friend who's comforting, and we're the one that's accused. There's a lot of ways to go wrong. For example, if you go into the... If you go... Just imagine if you went into God's court, and instead of claiming to be a sinner, you claim to be innocent. Now... Jesus and the devil are your accusers. Sorry. Jesus and Moses are your accusers, and the devil is your defender most people have a conscience shaped up that way where the devil is trying to spur them on to defend themselves Whew. or you can have a conscience that's disordered in the sense that God is not on the throne but I'm on the throne and I'm sitting there judging everybody you've met people like that, that they're, the, they're sitting as judge over the whole world and you, it's, it's a real pain to be around them because like everything, you, you know, it's just eggshells all over It's kind of crazy. So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways for the conscience to go wrong. Yep. And it shifts, too. Yes, sir. No, I haven't seen it. What's going on? Is that the he gets us thing? Yeah, I don't know anything about it. Although I did see yesterday... Do you guys watch the Babylon Bee stuff? I commend that to you. Those guys are great. It was a Babylon Bee... It's a satirical site, like Christian satire. And it was the interview with the devil after the Grammys... <laughs> And, you know, it was like Sam Smith and there was all this devil worship nonsense up there. And the devil's like, ah, ah, where's all the subtlety, you know? I mean, it was the best line of the whole thing was like, ah, remember the good old days when when devil worship was, it wasn't so obvious, like stairway to heaven and baby shark. but we realize that you know if we if we recognize on this level that the culture informs the conscience <clears throat> that people who don't want a conscience informed by God's word are going to be trying to shape the culture so that th- there's a battle over the culture stuff because there's a battle for the conscience yes man <clears throat> oh good the question was could you elaborate on the Holy Spirit so God is the judge Jesus is our advocate the word the, can, the what does the Holy Spirit do we should understand <clears throat> that as Jesus is our advocate in heaven our paraclete in heaven it is the Holy Spirit who is the paraclete in our hearts so Jesus uses that same word in John 15, 16, and 17 I will send you another paraclete so that and we're talking about Jesus in the heart, which is right. That's biblical language. But most especially, it's the Holy Spirit in the heart who brings the same. So the same thing that Jesus is saying in heaven, now the Holy Spirit is causing to echo in our conscience. So that's probably the chief work of the Holy Spirit. That's great. Okay, let's take a break. We come back at 1045. So that should be plenty of time. Uh, and we'll see you, see you then. Thank you.